And we are back with the Intrigue Podcast. Ryan Ray alongside the good doctor herself, Dr. Ellen Wall. It's been a long time. How are things going? You know, things are pretty good. OPEC is definitely having a big moment, so that's always fun. Yeah, let's get into it right away. We have a guest coming on here in a few minutes, I think. And so tell us what is going on with OPEC, Dr. Wall. Yeah, it seemed like um, everything was kind of status quo with OPEC, nothing, you know, exciting or different or anything. And, you know, um, I think EBS even said like a week or so ago, we're not planning to change anything. We think all these, you know, um, market gyrations are just uh, financial and there's not really anything to do. And then all of a sudden last night, word comes down that OPEC Plus has put together a voluntary supply cut. And a whole bunch of countries are all getting together and they're cutting cutting production. And um, oil prices just went to Zoom. I think WTI is back up at 80, whereas before it was like down to almost like 68. Uh, and Brent's up. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because everyone's got like their own reason for this. You know, Russia saying this is, you know, retaliation for the market manipulation, which is like code for you know, you guys, or what did they say? Market distortion. That was it. They, they were talking about how this is in response to market distortion from the West, um, and which I, I believe is is basically them saying you slapped sanctions and this bizarre price cap thing, and so ha, huh, we're just going to cut production. And um, you know, and then everyone others are saying, oh well, and and oh, and Russia came out and basically said like, oh, we're defending the price, which is something that OPEC never says. So everyone was kind of surprised to hear that. I mean, everyone knows it's to defend the price, but it's another thing to say <laughs> we're trying to defend, you know, eighty dollar oil. And um, one interesting thing, so um, you know, we'd had this debate a while back when the OPEC was having the monthly meetings, and I was saying, you know, OPEC's purpose was to give this like longer term guidance, and now they're meeting every month, and they've kind of ruined that. And you were saying, no, it's actually good because they can they can react to things, and they'll actually have more of an impact. And um, but what about when OPEC says we're not changing things for six months, and then they just suddenly go ahead and and do it? What what do you think is kind of the the overall impact of that? Okay, call me a, a little China-centric here, but doesn't this mean that they don't expect China's economy to roar? Oh, yeah, I I, I definitely think there's there's code there for, for China. I think that either they, I mean, I've, I've seen so many, actually, I've seen like, oh, this is, you know, news about China. Of course, Saudi Arabia just signed, Aramco just signed two deals that are basically designed to ship 600,000 more barrels per day to Chinese petrochemical and, and refineries. Um, now, some of that's not kind of come online, I think, until 2026. So the Saudis clearly think that in the long run, demand from China is going to be just fine. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think this says that they, they're not expecting a big Chinese resurgence. I think they're also, unless they think that China is going to do fine, but they think the West is going to tank. Okay. And um and so they're kind of cutting, uh, you know, because remember 2008, and this is something that looms large, I think, in their minds is they don't want to suddenly get hit with a massive price drop, which OPEC then has to react to by cutting production. They'd rather try to head it off with a small, like 1 million barrel a day, you know, OPEC plus cut now. So I'm not surprised if they're they're looking at the tea leaves or whatever, they're looking at their indicators and 
their indicators are saying like recession ahead in the West. And that's what they are reacting to in part. Although like a week or two ago, they were saying, you know, these market, you know, these price fluctuations are all financial and there's nothing supply and demand can do about it. So it's very, I think there are a bunch of reasons. And I do think China is definitely one one of the interesting things, at least I was thinking about, I was trying to, is that consumer demand seems to be doing pretty well, but um, what's the deal with industrial demand? Yeah, well, I, I sent you, and we can link to this in the show notes, um, Wood McKenzie did a report on China's reopening and how it could impact uh, the, obviously, the Chinese economy and the global economy. And if you kind of look through their base case scenario on oil demand, um, you know, they, th- this is obviously before the OPEC cut announcement. So keep that in mind. They, they predicted based upon their Chinese forecast, Chinese economic forecast for the year, a 8940, uh, $89, we'll call it average for 2023 for Brent. And so that's not a just tremendous amount of, of, um, you know, demand that they're, that they were seeing on the market. Now, they do forecast that if it if it goes to the kind of supercharge, I think what they call it, it's like a seven percent GDP growth. Um, and at that point, there could be a little bit more strain on the market, but it wasn't. It still wasn't as significant as maybe um, some might think. And so, but in the report, and so readers can go listen to this. They tease out the implications of the global GDP growth if China hits these certain benchmarks. And so, um, I think that's that's also has to be factored in, in here. Is that if China's economy does get red hot and they start sucking up demand, well, that that does have an impact on the West, right? Because now things will become more expensive for us and could impact how our economy grows. That's a good point. So maybe maybe um, Saudi Arabia or and OPEC are actually trying to cool Chinese, the Chinese economy by pushing up oil prices. Perhaps, yeah. I, I don't know. I just- I don't know. That's a thought. Yeah, yeah, that's a thought. Um, but last year, it seemed that there was a lot of talk about, you know, Chinese uh, growth, that, you know, was going to blow stuff out of the water. One other point from that report real quick is that they talked about the, uh, I think it was LNG imports and how far they had dropped. And they still don't expect them to rebound before uh, back to 2021 levels or 2019 levels. I can't remember what it is. They, they still don't expect the Chinese imports to get back to those levels this year. So it is yeah, going to yeah, put a little bit of a squeeze on that market, but not nearly as much as it would have, you know, uh, two three years ago, so so the, so even their uh, imports of that is not going to get back to normal. Level. Okay, but but here's a question: Are they compensating by just using more domestically produced coal because maybe they don't want to pay global prices for LNG? Like because the price of LNG on the spot market is way up because Europe was buying all those spot market cargos, so maybe China is like we don't want to pay those prices for LNG, so we're just going to burn more of our own coal. Right. Maybe so. So it, it, yeah. So the LNG imports fell by 20% in 2022, I believe. Um, and they're only supposed to recover, I think, recover, I think 9% of that this year. I think that's what it is. Um, but you think about all that LNG that went to Europe that took up that Chinese demand. And so there's a question of if Europe is now using that um, and China does start to, to, be, to get more of it, then do you have a uh, a squeeze in the market there, but hmm. to your point, if they if they do pivot to coal or something like that, then maybe that maybe that will alleviate the 
the pain, but that is something to watch is that if the Chinese demand does come back even more than what McKinsey predicts, um, there could be a, yeah. a I mean, I think that this is a, it's a really, I think that for OPEC, you know, I used to always say like, they just, you know, Saudi Arabia is very much, they have market reasons for what they're doing. And I definitely see market reasons now, but if you look at the messaging, it also seems very much like they just want to be like, we can, we can surprise you. Like, watch out. We're, we're still important. Like, you know, we're going to make the speculators, you know, hurt, which I think is kind of immature because this is exactly the sort of thing that speculators thrive on. Because unless you can, like, these kind of big market moves are exactly why people speculate on oil. So mm -hmm. they're just kind of like, yeah, maybe they'll lose a lot of money today, but like tomorrow they'll make a lot or something. So I think that it's a very kind of immature way to I mean, maybe that I don't think that's the only reason, but to like come out and say that, I just think it's very, it's, it doesn't, it, it shows a lack of understanding about what speculation is about. They just like big moves. So, yeah, and there's two things that come to mind there. One, on the protect the price, does that say anything about the stability of their economies? So they're looking at their economies going, yeah, we could theoretically let the price go down to insert number here, 65 or whatever, but we really can't afford that. We're concerned about some other um, economic issue that we need to keep prices high. And then the other thing is, does this hurt the narrative that OPEC is trying to crush the U.S. producers? Because it would be a great time to, if, if they could drive prices down, this would be a good time to do it. Oh, yeah. I, I think at this point, the narrative that, that I think OPEC realized that like the U.S. producers are being crushed by the U.S., and they don't actually need to do anything anymore to, to crush them. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I said that, I, I mean, I, I can't remember who I said this to, but I was like, if the U.S. really wants to stick it to OPEC, like the best way to do it, it would just produce a lot of oil because that's how you can impact the price. You know, complaining to Riyadh is just not going to do it now because Riyadh's looking over at Beijing as their top customer and they're going to do what they think is best for, for that relationship, not what they think is best for the U.S., for the relationship with the U.S. in terms of, of oil, especially now that they know that there are basically no consequences, uh, despite what people say. Um, so I think that that's, that's also, that's definitely an issue. Um, but another, another interesting factor could be, um, you know, that they, that they are concerned because of the SPR buyback. So like the U S was like, Oh, when oil hits X price, we're going to buy back, we're going to buy oil for, to refill the SPR. And then they didn't. And, you know, if you were looking for someone to impact the price of oil, a demand, you know, a suddenly that would have been a big surge in demand. And that definitely would have pushed prices up if the U.S. had contracted, had, you know, done a bunch of big contracts for, for oil. And I think that 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 messaging was really misleading. I think the Saudis took them seriously when they shouldn't have taken them seriously. And is this kind of a, a sense like, oh, we we thought that that's what you were going to do when oil went too low. We thought you were basically going to, you were going to do what, but basically they're going to defend the, the, the price by pushing demand, by, by increasing your demand. And you just didn't. So like now we're going to do a surprise, you know, defend the price on the supply side. Hmm. So possibility. Uh, how fast do you think this cut came together? Like, is this the, the infamous, what, what's that group? Like, like someone's like, yeah, like, hey, like, you know what? Yeah, like one cut. week. Hey, 
<laughs> Anybody want to cut here? Cut. <laughs> they sent around a little like poll on their WhatsApp group, like <laughs> press, you know, press this mm-hmm. or like a, a survey monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to cut? Raise your hand. Yeah. Because you're right. It is, it is kind of um, quick and sudden. The cut is, if, if people are on board with it, seems easier to accomplish than the ramp up though, right? Yeah. And so, it depends who you are, but yeah, it and is. So cutting is, is one thing, but then trying to ramp up is going to be, if, 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 if this is a miscalculation and all of a sudden you realize, oh man, we actually shouldn't have cut this much. Um, you could find yourself in a, in a process, uh, in, a, in a spot to where you're, um, you're trying to ramp up now to meet demand, but, yeah. but you can't. And so, yeah. Or what about, um, you know, are they going to actually be able to, uh, who's going to follow through? Remember mm-hmm. this is all voluntary. So that's, that's if somebody doesn't follow yeah. through, nothing yeah. they can do. What, what, what will compliance rates actually be? Okay. That is the our question. guest is here. James, can you hear us? Yes. Good morning. How's it going? Good morning, Ryan. And Ellen, good morning. Hi. <laughs> Okay, maybe give a quick inter, uh, introduction of yourself, uh, what you know, who you are, where you work for, for our listeners. Sure, exactly. My name is uh, James Hill. I'm uh, CEO of MCF Energy. Uh, we're a company traded on the Canadian Exchange, uh, which is currently and very aggressively exploring for natural gas resources in Europe. Yes. My uh, background has been. Um, 40 years in the industry, uh, working for both major and minor oil companies. I've been involved in uh, both the technical and management side of, of uh, several different successful companies. Uh, BNK Petroleum was, uh, I was vice president of exploration for them. I was uh, VP of exploration and production for Bankers Petroleum that held some very large assets in Albania and Europe. Okay, good. Well, let's talk about Europe real quick. We were just talking about a Wood McKinsey report that talked about the, in, the, impact, the impact of Chinese demand and how coming back and how that might um, put some pressure on the European market. What's happened over the past 12-ish months as far as the European gas market? There was a lot of doom and gloom predictions, and then those seemed to kind of miss, and now there's Chinese demand coming back. What is the state of the, of the market over, the, over there? What's going on right now is... Um... Europe is pretty much bridged the gap through this winter uh, with the large LNG imports that have been coming, not just from the U.S. but uh, from some of the uh, from some of the uh, countries in in uh, Arabia and that sort of uh, area. But uh, of course, LNG is very very expensive. Um, the Chinese uh, have started to lift their COVID requirements uh, and restrictions on their population. And they've already started to compete for the uh, limited resources uh, in in the world as far as natural gas goes. LNG, of course, uh, they have not uh, been on the market for that because of their lockdowns, but that's changing. So as we go into the summer months, the demand uh, will decrease a little bit for heating of homes and whatnot, but the use of petrochemicals and also in the industries will continue to demand uh, natural gas in the system. Um, there's been a big change uh, just here in the last day or so 
OPEC is cutting 1.1 million barrels of, of oil from the market. Uh, they're following the Russians' lead. Uh, Brent crude is uh, almost at $85 a barrel this morning. And some people are uh, uh, predicting the price to rise to over $100 a barrel. And of course, natural gas prices will follow that. So the crisis in Europe really has not stopped and won't stop for, for quite a while, even, even after the current uh, conflict in Ukraine um, is ended. So um, I'm I'm curious. So um, I think that that most people have a sense that Europe definitely has you know natural gas and, and petroleum resources, but um, they seem you know hell bent on not not developing them outside of you know some areas of of Britain and and Norway. Um, how do you do? You, how do you see kind of the climate in terms of production there and? Um, you know, are there's uh, what are the, the regulations like in terms of kind of getting any production underway? And, and do you see that changing as a result of, uh, you know, the developments in terms of, um, you know, not getting natural gas from from Russia anymore? Well, the European community has recognized natural gas as a as a transition fuel and green, which has been a big change. Also, the fact that Europe has been drunk on Russian gas for decades now, and they've allowed themselves to um, basically ignore the resources within their own borders because Russian gas was available and cheap, and uh, they could um, not develop the resources that they had. Well, now, of course, that's all changed, and we've seen this in a number of different ways. Um, the company that we're partnered with in Austria, for instance, uh, ADX, was able to get a well drilled within six months of application, uh, which of course is unheard of uh, in the past. The regulatory environment uh, is still strict and it still very, very, very strongly guards the environment, but the process is much speeded up now. Um, the projects that we're looking at drilling in uh, 2023, we've got two wells that we hope to put down. And the permitting process is much streamlined uh, compared to what it used to be. Um, so tell us, so other than outside of Austria, are there any other other areas that you're looking at looking at outside of you know the the German Austria region? Um, or is that really kind of the the epicenter? Well, we are looking at projects all over. We've looked at projects as far east as Azerbaijan, as far west as Spain. Uh, we've looked at projects in the North Sea and as far south as North Africa. Um, our mandate is to bring energy into Europe. And if there are pipelines or um, vessels that we can utilize to bring energy into Europe, uh, we're interested in those projects. Yeah, that's my next question. Um, Question was, what's the um, infrastructure um, like in terms of, of pipeline? You know, is there is and, and is there any potential to kind of use, you know, obviously they had a good pipeline infrastructure to bring gas from Russia. Is there any way to utilize that to, you know, if, if you do start producing a lot to, um, you know, get the gas out? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, for uh, our Wealthchild prospect in Austria, 
the uh, main grid pipeline is only 18 kilometers away from the location we're going to be drilling. Um, in uh, Germany, and some of the areas we're drilling, there's uh, infrastructure less than a kilometer away. So yeah, we're looking at we're looking at at rapid uh, rapid expansion <laughs> and uh, and utilization and and production as we move forward. Um, yeah, that's that's really fascinating, especially because in the U.S. we have so many infrastructure uh, constraints. Um, what about uh, are, are these wells? You know, are we talking about more kind of traditional um, gas drilling, or is this more of uh, hydraulic fracturing? What what kind of resources? We don't envision uh, any hydraulic fracturing in the reservoirs that we're looking at right now. Um, the um, a lot of the reservoirs that, that we're looking at, which contain oil and gas, and of course we're mainly after gas, are proven reservoirs. They have the ability to flow um, with only minor stimulation. Um, you know, hydraulic fracturing has been used in the United States for over a decade now. There's over 300,000 wells that have been drilled and fracture stimulated. Um, but we don't envision having to use that technology in Europe right now. So everything, everything is going to be conventional uh, as far as we can tell. And uh, of course, you never know until the drill bit actually enters the rock and you find out what it's about. But, but everything, everything looks good and, and, uh, and, and, and pretty, pretty normal as far as production operations go. And what's the the reception been like on the ground? Are you know people are, are these wells near any kind of you know residential or, or business areas? And and how you know what's the reception from you know people who who are living in these areas like? Well, we've been exploring in Europe, or at least I have, for over a decade. And one of the things that has been uh, really my major focus is to engage the stakeholders, to engage the local communities. Uh, Ten years ago, when we drilled in Poland, for instance, we had uh, town meetings with uh, not just the fire department and the sheriff and the mayor and all that, but we had open forums for the local community and the people to come in and engage with us. One of the things I've learned is that is that people become frustrated when they don't think their their concerns are being addressed, mm -hmm. and that is our major focus is to make sure that we're a good neighbor. You know, we're not just gonna come in and drill a well and leave. Uh, the idea is, is that we're going to engage with the local communities, uh, not just provide jobs, but be a positive to the community. And um, we really feel that, that that's, a, that's the way to, to um, approach the previous problems of well companies not engaging with people and, and not telling them what's going on and and proving to them that we like to drink clean water and we like to breathe clean air just like they do and we're going to be partners in their community and make sure that 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 happens so you're not concerned about just stop oil stopping by you know there's always going to be those people out there that are going to be carbon negative and of course you know you address their concerns as best you can but right now, the energy needs of Europe dictate that you either develop the resources within your own borders or you go cold and your factories shut down. Um, there really isn't any, any choice. There really isn't. Uh, real quick, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about um, OPEC and the 
price going up. Um, in, in the U.S., at least, Permian produces a lot of natural gas. And so do you think that Permian production might come back and help offset some of that natural gas squeeze you're talking about? Well, yeah, absolutely. The U.S. is one of the major LNG exporters to Europe right now. And the problem with the Permian Basin has always been pipelines and transportation. Um, you can transport oil. You can put it into, into tanker trucks and, and, and tanker it. But you can't do that really with natural gas. You really do need pipelines. And they are developing pipeline infrastructure in the U.S. There's been some pushback, of course, from environmental groups. But they really need to harness that natural gas. And it's not just the Permian that has natural gas. When you actually look at the U.S. Um, the makeup of resources within, uh, within the United States, uh, the Northern Appalachians up around Pennsylvania in that area have massive natural gas resources. Uh, the U.S. probably has two or 300 years of natural gas resources uh, at their at their disposal right now. So, um, you know, it's just a matter of development and getting it to market. So as China comes back, um, some of this, this LNG has been diverted to Europe. Um, you mentioned that there's a problem. Is there a way to service both China and Europe and keep prices reasonably stable? Well, again, it's supply and demand, and that's why we're in Europe right now is to develop supply. Um, the prospects in Europe have really been ignored for 40, maybe even 50 years, especially in Germany. Um, they really have had a, a real, uh, real restriction on development of resources within their own borders. And of course, that's, that's changed dramatically right now. And there's been another problem, of course, and that's price. Uh, we've looked at prospects where wells have been drilled and completed and found natural gas. But at the time, because of the, the, the economics, uh, they had to abandon these wells uh, and they'd be perfectly economic today. So there's a lot of resources out there within Europe and within their own borders that can be developed. And that's what MCF is, is trying to do. So where do you think we're going to be at a year, five years from now? Is this something that we can figure out in the short term? Or is this a kind of a long-term problem that's going to take to be uh, resolved? Well, I don't think that the Europeans are going to uh, allow themselves to become addicted to Russian gas anymore. Uh, I think that Russia will play a, a, a role in supplying energy to Europe. But the idea is, is that the safest energy resources that you can have are within your own borders. And I think that this is something that, that the EU has recognized and is going to address moving forward. Um, it is going to take more than a year, and it's going to take more than a, a couple of wells to really impact the current energy uh, crisis, which Europe is going to face. Um, this year uh, was fairly mild, and because of the excess LNG that China was not competing for, uh, they were able to keep their storage up. They were able to keep their factories and homes warm. Uh, as the year goes on and China emerges and starts to compete for those LNG cargos, um, that may not be the case for next year. 
And as we've seen in here in California, uh, you know, the weather can change. And uh, we've been in years of drought and now we've got more water than we can handle. So again, there are a number of factors that, that come into play here, but the actual demand uh, is going to exceed supply. And they're going to, the price is gonna go up and the cargoes are going to be uh, contended for. And I think China is going to emerge as the gorilla in the room and start to start to just take a number of those LNG cargoes away from Europe. Okay, Dr. Walt, I'll give you the last question. Um, I guess uh, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, um, what you see as, you know, kind of um, the future in terms of, of you know, Russian natural gas. And, and you say Europe's never going get, to get back onto to Russian natural gas. Um, do you think that if, if Europe is really able to commit to developing its own resources, that um, they could potentially become a, a natural gas exporter? Or do you think that this is really just, they, they really think this is only a temporary thing that they're using just until, you know, everybody uses green energy forever? Well, natural gas has been declared a green and a transition fuel, and uh, I've agreed with that my entire career. Uh, there will be a transition to renewables, there will be a transition to green energy, but as we've seen, uh, it's going to take major, major funding and major changes in lifestyle for everybody in order to achieve that goal. And this is a process which is not going to be done in months. It's going to take decades in order to make this transition. And natural gas is the preferred fuel uh, to bridge that gap. And the more of it we can find and produce, the easier that transition to renewables is going to be. Um, you know, in even after we're producing primarily green energy, you know, petrochemicals, um, Everything that, that we use, everything from clothing to lipstick, it uses these products. So it is going to continue. Uh, the, in other words, the demand for these products and natural gas is going to continue into, into the far future. So the transition is going to happen. It's just a matter of how painful it's going to be for the average uh, person living not just in Europe, but all around the world. Okay, James, and if they want to follow more about what you guys have going on, where should they do that at? Um, we have two current projects going on, one in Austria and uh, one in Germany. Uh, we have other concessions, which we have under application at the moment. And um, we plan to drill at least two wells this year. Uh, and these are high impact wells. The uh, one in Austria um, is a very large geologic structure called an anticline. Uh, there's gas in the area. There's uh, a bottle to put that gas in that we're going to drill into. And we're very excited about that. Our German resources are a proven gas field, which is there, uh, which we are now looking at the economics and um, the equipment designs to produce that gas. And uh, also there's a, there's a kicker of helium in our German gas. Uh, helium is a very, very valuable gas and it's utilized in industries um, in many, many ways. So uh, this is something that's, that's going to be another profit center for us, we, we think. 
Um, and moving forward, we, we are very, very aggressively pursuing those opportunities in Europe, which have gone ignored for the past 40 or 50 years. I mean, they're there uh, as geologists and, and geophysicists, we know they're there. It's just a matter of putting together a program and the finances uh, to do that, to, to go in and exploit those resources and provide Europe the energy security that they really need moving forward. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank and you. Best of luck on taking down this big challenge in Europe. It's a lot of fun. It's um, I've always enjoyed projects where I felt I could contribute and and to be a positive towards not just the the governments, but the local communities. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, I appreciate your interest. Awesome. Best of luck. Okay, Dr. Wald, where will you be this week? This week, I will be on investing.com and also on uh, Bloomberg Radio. So catch me there. Okay. And of course, I will be on Inside the War Room. So we did it when last week on kind of the background of the Russian invasion into Ukraine. I don't know. Got all kinds of stuff coming out this week. So anyways, check that out. And I think, hopefully, we'll... If we're lucky, we'll be back again next week.